Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Special guest today is Jerry Jewell. Jerry is an incredibly talented young woman, actress, stand-up comedian, a progenitor of the fine arts, also a person who would qualify herself as being afflicted with an illness. She has triumphed over incredible adversity to excel, and it is our pleasure to have her on this program. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jerry. Thank you, Robert. Um, can, I, can I correct you just a little bit? Please I'm, feel free. I'm not afflicted with anything, really. <laughs> and cerebral palsy is not an illness. It's a condition to the motor part of the brain that usually occurs before birth, during birth, or after birth. And it affects the motor skills. So I, it's not a disease that, de, that is degenerative. It's just a condition that I have lived with for my entire life. I came into the world with brain and I see. It is rather interesting the way people then misdiagnose and discern it. Do you find yourself perpetually having them correct it? Not so much anymore, but a lot when I started out, you know. Um, I think we've been exposed to people with disabilities and I've done disability sensitivity training for God two decades for fortune 500 companies and government agencies and so we're becoming more educated there are those who when something is pointed out to them that they feel is untrue react with anger react with uh, a bit of petulance you seem to have reached a point in your life where you simply accept what someone doesn't know as you just did and calmly correct them. Did that come only with time? Um, in other words, is there anger responding to me or am I angry, or am I angry because of mis being misunderstood? Is that what you're asking me? You are exquisitely patient with what people think they know but don't. And I'm often of the opinion when you're in front of an audience, you're educating them as well as making them laugh. Yes. Well, you know, a good example of that would be, um, oh, God, Hogan's Heroes or MASH. You know, the subject matter was not funny, okay, in either of those sitcoms. But you're, you're laughing with them at the human condition of how we respond to it. And, and that's what I do with cerebral palsy on stage. I do the same thing. I, I'm not making fun of the condition. I'm making fun of the human, con the human condition of how we respond to cerebral palsy. People talk about nudity in movies. I can myself personally think of nothing so vulnerable as standing in front of a group of strangers and talking about things you hope they will find humorous. How did you deal with the fear? Well, 
Um, it's interesting. I started doing stand-up in 1978. I, I was in college at the time, and I was very frustrated. Um, I, ha I had flunked anatomy and physiology and algebra three times. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, how in the world am I going to finish school if I'm having so much trouble? And it, and it wasn't that I wasn't intelligent. It was because I spent too many years in special ed and was ill-prepared and I had to catch up. But I had no patience for ketchup <laughs> or mustard for that matter. And <laughs> I decided um, through my friend Alex Valdez, he, he was a stand-up comic and he was blind. And he asked me why I was so frustrated, and I explained it to him that I really wanted to be in show business. I wanted to be a comedic actress like Carol Burnett. And he said, well, why don't you do what I'm doing? I said, what are you doing? I go to the comedy store every week in Hollywood and tell blind jokes. <laughs> and I said, well, Alex, that may work for you, but I see you perfectly fine. He goes, no, dinky-faced. You tell cerebral palsy joke. So he got me into it. And I was a very, very young 21-year-old. I, I was naive. I, I didn't know what to expect. And the first time I ever performed, the MC incorrectly introduced me as a man driving 60 miles to get there. Let's give him a big hand. And I walked on stage, and you could hear a pin drop. And comedians usually have to fight for that silence, get their attention. I didn't have to fight for it. It was right there. And I went into a comedy routine, and they were staring at me for a little bit, kind of confused. My God, that's a man. And my God, he drove in that condition. <laughs> And so I took that, that silence and played with it. And I ended up getting a standing ovation the first night that I ever performed. It, w it was amazing. Do you write your own material then, or is it most of it uh, a bit of a jazz riff? You improvise. I, I have written most of my material. Occasionally a comedian will come up with a line and give it to me. My mom did a couple of times. Believe it or not. <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting is I found success very, very rapidly, unnaturally fast. And there was a huge article on me, and I had only been a comedian less than a year in the LA Times. And I remember reading it, and the the author who reviewed my act said this was an amazing comedian, just unbelievable. She has so much self-confidence. She acts like she doesn't have any hecklers at, at all. She ignores him and keeps going. And I laughed out loud when I read that because I'm hearing impaired. I have 75% hearing loss, which a lot of people don't know. And that was the first time I realized I had hecklers. I never heard them. 
<laughs> it had nothing to do with self-confidence. It had to do with not knowing that there were people who, who were making fun of me and challenging me on stage. And it was taken as a supreme self-confidence, which I really had to grow into <laughs> once I figured out I had that place. It's marvelous. There's a story often told, uh, I would not know whether it's apocryphal or not, Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy was asked what's funny. He said, if I walk down a street and I fall into an open manhole, that's funny. But if you pan the camera down the manhole and see my broken body at the bottom, that's tragic. Where is the line? Much of comedy today can be discerned as painful. You know laugh in a million different ways truthfully I'm, I mean we cry in only one way at sadness and tragedy but we laugh I mean what's funny to one person might not be funny to someone else um, for instance anytime I see videos online of people falling or you know like <laughs> home video, um, I can't watch someone physically struggling, but some people think it's funny. I can't watch it, and I don't think it's funny because I've fallen personally so many times that I know it's not funny. Um, I guess the humor comes in is when you have the ability to laugh at yourself. Okay, I can't laugh at somebody else falling and getting hurt, but I can laugh at myself falling. And so if I can laugh at myself, I can bring it to you in a different way. Does that make sense? Indeed it does, Jerry. It's poetically put. Some time ago, I mentored a young man in his college application who had developed muscular dystrophy, and the question was coming up in his essay as to when he realized situations were as you have just described. Was there an epiphanal moment where you said, I can deal with this, there's humor in it, I care not whether I'm being teased, bothered, or harassed, I will go on? Well, you know, I was blessed to have a, a wonderful foundation with my family. I mean, my whole family had a sense of humor. And my dad, eh, but <laughs> my brothers, my sisters, my mom. I, I can remember learning how to walk, and I have this memory of it. I mean, I didn't learn how to walk on my own until I was four. No, I had a lot more work to do than the, than the typical toddler because I had motor skills impairment. And I can remember falling in the kitchen floor. And you know when a baby falls, he automatically cries to get that attention and pick up? Yes. And my mom just looked at me and she said, was that trip necessary, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> and she stopped me in my, in my screaming and crying. And I just looked at her. And then I giggled. <laughs> Do you feel, Jerry, that emotion can be taught? 
I've interviewed musicians who will say that they can teach their instrument, painters who can teach the style. Can you teach someone to have a sense of humor? You know, um, I don't think you can. I honestly don't. I think either you have it or you don't. It's not, it's not a skill. You can't go to a class in college and learn how to develop a sense of humor. You have to have it within you in order to grow with it. If I, I mean, if you don't have a, if you don't have a sense of humor about yourself, you're going to have a real hard time in life. Bottom line: lighten up, learn to laugh at yourself a little bit, and your life will get easier if you do. Some comics have taken the position that they channel their anger, frustrations, feelings into humor, shock comics and so forth. Yes. Are you forced to challenge and channel your emotions in positive ways consciously? Ah, that's an interesting question. Um... Yes, in a way. I, I I can take a situation that occurred in life that was painful, that was hard, that was frustrating, created anger in me, and then I'll take that exact situation and bring it to the stage in a funny way. But again, that's having the ability to see the humor in it later. Carol Burnett said something a long time ago, which is what we're talking about right now, and it makes sense. Humor is tragedy plus time. In other words, it may not be funny while it's occurring, but if you look back on it later, you can find the humor in it. And I think that's very true. It must take tremendous strength then to find that at the moment in the oh. midst of a performance. And you, you shouldn't be expected to find it in the moment. I mean, <laughs> if you laugh at everything that hurts and is painful and anger, then uh, there's something real wrong somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Have you... <laughs> that's, that's a marvelous statement. <laughs> Are you laughing at me, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> laughing with you, laughing with you. <laughs> Mel Brooks has made a certain number of movies where people have said that's in poor taste. And his reaction simply always is, isn't it funny? Have we gone beyond the borders of what is good taste? We live in an age where things are so provocative. Um, have we? Um... Uh, in a way, sometimes, I, I I imagine that we've taken a lot of things to the extreme. But, you know, you look back on television and comedians in the past, we've been doing it for decades, so haven't we? Indeed, yes. Is there a difference then, Jerry, between a comedian and a humorist? between a, real, a Will Rogers and a person on stage in a club today, is there a distinction? 
Oh, that's a good question. Because I'm a combination of both. And not all comedians have the ability to be a humorist. But um, it depends on, you know, how you define your stand-up comedy material, what you're doing. Um, I'm a storyteller. That, okay, here it is. I'm a storyteller. I always have been, always will be. My humor it lies in telling stories, not necessarily a joke. In other words, I cannot stand people that come up to me and say, oh, you're a comedian? Tell me a joke right now. <laughs> I just look at him. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's the difference whether you're a joke teller or whether you're a storyteller. And you can combine both. I mean, I, I do tell jokes, but mostly I tell stories. I'm a firm believer in the raconteur type of performance where you do tell a story. I have not recently seen anyone of the ilk, let's say, of a Bob Hope, who simply told a series of jokes that writers presented to him or he wrote himself. I'd like you to consider that uh, for a moment. We're about to take our first station break, Jerry, and we'll come back with a discussion of what is a good joke? And if indeed we can write humor on a page and then make it work, or does it take a special talent to be the exponent of the idea? We'll be back in a few seconds. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Our special guest is Ms. Jerry Jewell, raconteur, bon vivant, a teller of tales, tales that we all want to experience, listen to, and enjoy. Be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Program is seldom said. The place where conversation matters. Special guest, Ms. Jerry Jewell, a woman of Renaissance-like talents. There doesn't seem to be anything that Jerry hasn't excelled at. Jerry, I wonder if you could respond then to that question we posited before the break. Johnny Carson, for instance, uh, allegedly did not enjoy Bob Hope being a guest. His hope was scripted. What is your opinion of scripted humor? Well, in other words, you you don't go away from the script. You a series you, of jokes. Yeah, you you, but you know that's interesting that Johnny Carson would feel that way about Bob Hope because Johnny Carson was very scripted. Um, almost like he felt that Bob Hope unconsciously felt that he was competing with him. Almost the way I see it. Um, I, I, you know, let's take it back further. Let's take it to Charlie Chaplin, who did silent movies, yet he was extremely funny. He was hysterical. So he had no verbal ability to tell the joke. He told the joke through silence and movements and facial expressions. And he was also a storyteller in that same frame. That's interesting. That is interesting. Given then what you do and how you do it, Jerry, 
Have you ever, in the midst of a story, lost your place? Have I ever, in the midst of a story, lost my place? Where, in a sense, there is a sense of perhaps a, a musician playing violin, playing a Bach cantata, and midway through realizing my mind went someplace else. How do I bring it back? Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. You know, you have this question mark in your mind, like, what, what am I trying to achieve? Where am I going? How did I get here? Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, we all do that. Um, it's, it's a matter of how fast you can get yourself back on track. And it, truthfully, when you do live comedy in clubs and you have hecklers, there's, that happens frequently with comedians because hecklers will interfere with the train of thought. I mean, I don't have that problem because I can't hear them. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, it happens. It's just a matter of how fast you can get back on track. And you might have to take a little detour to do it, but you can do it. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take the positive side of the coin then. You've had a great night. You've killed the audience. Five standing ovations. They could bring you back all evening. How do you find that again during the next show? Okay. Um, remember I told you that when I first did stand-up, the very first routine I did, I got a standing ovation. The second time that I did it, the following week, again at the comedy store, I bombed. I fell flat on my face, and I was mortified. I told the exact same jokes, and nobody laughed. And I ran up down Sunset Boulevard with tears in my eyes, with Alex and John coming after me, and they finally caught up with me. So where are you going? And I said, I, I bombed. I never want to do this again, ever, ever, ever again. And Alex said, Jerry, you're going to bomb many times. If you're, if you're a comedian, that's a part of it. And I said, I was like shocked. I said, well, Bob Hope doesn't bomb. And Alex said, yes, he does. He just hopes that he doesn't, but he does. You got to, um, you know, toughen that skin. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I have bombed. I think we all do in life. Lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? <laughs> no, you've covered it perfectly. <laughs> I can see where where an audience enjoys your presence, Jerry. We're enjoying this interview immensely. Well, that's because I have a sense of humor about myself. Uh, you know, I I did a show for Norman Lear once in 1982 for. It was called I Love Liberty, and it was televised. Thank God it was pre-recorded because it was supposed to go live, but we were running over schedule, so they put a movie on ABC, and they aired it the following week. And I walked up on stage on crutches for the role that I was playing, the American disabled person, and I went into a comedy routine 
and I had just followed like Mary Tyler Moore, Shirley MacLaine. I mean, huge, huge stars, Christopher Reeve, Robin Williams. And I told one joke after another and nobody laughed. And I thought, oh my God, what a short career it just ended. I was mortified. I had tears in my eyes and I looked out at the audience and I said, you know, um, I think I need help real bad. Norman Lear came running up on stage from the control booth and he's holding me in his arms and he backed me up and he said, Jilly, are you okay? He actually felt that he gave me too much responsibility too soon in my career and that I wasn't ready for that because my audience consisted of 25,000 people that night. Mm. And he backed me up and he said, Jerry, are you okay? And I said, Norman, I'm fine, but the material sucks. (laughs) 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 And he smiled me loud. And he said, Jerry, read my lips. Your mic wasn't on. (laughs) (laughs) That's... Nobody heard you. That's that's. that's and I started laughing. I was laughing. Are you guys kidding? <laughs> and he put his arms around me. And he, he looked out at the audience. He, he said, "How many people out there want to give this girl a second chance?" <laughs> and they stood up and gave me a standing ovation. So I was allowed to do the whole routine again. And I ended up getting a standing ovation again. I got two standing ovations. (laughs) Were you as funny growing up with your peers? Oh, God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. I, I always had a sense of humor. And like I said, I get it from my family. I mean, (laughs) I remember it. I think my mom had a really warped sense of humor. (laughs) Seriously, my my aunt was visiting us, and she didn't want a heavy meal. She said, you know, I've been dieting. I want something really light, because my mom had made Hungarian goulash that night. Oh, that's too heavy. I want something light, Olga. So she came back a minute later with a plate and a light bulb on it. (laughs) (laughs) Have something light. (laughs) So I get a lot of my humor from my mother. (laughs) Do you feel that you parallel your mother's humor by making it visual? Bringing back the light. One sees it rather than hears it. Um... Well, that's just one example. I mean, I, I can remember, oh, here's a good example of my mother's humor. Uh, it was at Christmas, and my sister Gloria and I always got equal gifts. You know, if we were three years apart, whatever. Gloria got, Jerry got, Jerry got, Gloria got. And there was one extra gift under the tree, and it was huge, a big box. And I thought, I'm thinking, oh, my God, 
Santa likes me better than Glory. <laughs> and I, I was like, ooh, I got one more dip better than my sister. And I opened it up. And on the bottom of the box, huge box, was a, was a little piece of paper with a note on it. <laughs> said, Dear Jerry, I saw what you did. Love, Santa. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure I did something. <laughs> and my mom was laughing. The progeny seems to have fallen not too far from the tree. <laughs> yeah. For someone listening in the audience now, someone who feels that they're afflicted or affected or born with a problem, and yet they'll see someone like yourself or someone like Carol Burnett or anyone and say to themselves in the privacy of their own shadow, I want to do that. I want to be that. What advice would you give? Well, I could only give the same advice that was given to me by Carol Burnett. If you want to do that, try there's no guarantee that you can become professional, but you'll never know what you can do unless you try. And Carol Burnett wrote me a letter back when I was 13 with that message. You know, it, let's jump up to Deadwood for a minute. And here's a prime example of humor. Um, because, first of all, you know, Deadwood is a very dark show. So why would someone like me be cast in Deadwood? And interestingly, when I got Deadwood, uh, I had I had been overcoming spinal cord surgery and neck surgery from C1 to C7. I honestly didn't think I would have a career. And I was standing in line at a pharmacy to pick up Botox for the neurologist to inject in my neck for chronic pain. And I looked horrible that morning. Oh, my God. And I thought, oh, nobody's going to recognize me. Don't worry about it. Just pick up the Botox and go. And this man turned around. He was in line at the pharmacy. And he goes, oh, my God, are you Jerry Jewell? I said, I don't believe this. <laughs> Yes, I am. And he said, well, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love you. I, I, you've inspired me. You've made me laugh over the years. But I haven't seen you on TV lately. What are you doing now with your life? I said, Botox. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed. And, and he said, well, listen, how would you like a television series? And I looked at him stunned. I said, this is a pharmacy, right? <laughs> Looking around, is there a camera in here? He said, yeah, and in case you don't recognize me, my name is David Milch. I said, the executive producer of NYPD Blue? And he said, yep. And I said, well, Mr. Milch, I'm, I'm flattered that you believe in me and you you." You think I have a sense of humor or whatever, but I honestly would make a shitty cop. And he said, he said, no, 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 no. I just signed a contract with HBO. 
I'm going to do a Western called Deadwood. You want to do a Western? And I looked up as far as my titanium neck would wrap me, and I said, God, you have a quirky sense of humor. I mean, I'm standing here with cerebral palsy, a titanium neck, depending on Botox, and David Mills wants me to ride a horse. <laughs> and he wrote his phone number on an ant on a prescription pad for an antidepressant. And I was one of the first persons that was ever cast in Deadwood by David Mills. And I think why David even saw that vision is because he knew it was going to be a dark show and he knew it needed some light. So I offered light to a dark situation. And that is, that was my role. That was my job in Deadwood to lighten it. I mean, Jewel, the character I played, she was funny. <laughs> I can vouch for the fact that uh, you did bring light to that program. It is a rather dark piece. But whenever you appear on stage, it's not a snicker. It's a smile. It's an inward feeling that there's positivism in this dark scene. Yes. That's, that's a gift. I'm not entirely sure that's a procured or learned talent. That seems to be something that with the angels uh, comes with a life. Oh, what a compliment. That's my pleasure. Well, I, I do believe in angels, and I do believe that, you know, it's interesting you should say that, because I believe that my having cerebral palsy was a 100% gift, a spiritual gift, because through having this disability, it has given me um, sensitivity, it's given me compassion. It's taught me to be tolerant. It's taught me to learn patience. I mean, I have learned so many spiritual lessons from having this disability that in part it is kind of angelic, if that makes any sense. Indeed it does. Perhaps to take it a step further, if I may, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts has a, a 500 questionnaire in which they ask students how they feel and what they want to do with their careers and how they discern success. The last question is, at the end, if you're at the pearly gates, and indeed you believe in them, how would you like St. Peter to welcome you? And students have difficulty with that question. How would you answer it, Jerry? Well, God, how would I want St. Peter to welcome me? Well, I would hope St. Peter has a sense of humor. <laughs> and I, I, I would hope that he would... Well, it's interesting because if I crossed over to the other side, would I immediately not have cerebral palsy? Would I immediately be able to move normally? I mean, cerebral palsy is a physical human condition. So I, I think if St. Peter said to me, you know, you can leave cerebral palsy behind. <laughs> you can let go now, Jerry. Let go of it. 
<laughs> Jerry, if I may, please hold that thought. I have to take the second station break. This is going rather quickly. That's a sign of a good program. We'll be back in a moment. The program is seldom said. Our guest is Ms. Jerry Jewell. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest, and this has been a special program, Ms. Jerry Jewell. Jerry, if you would continue with the thought that we had just before the break, and if I might posit an addition to it, many women are arguing that there still is a glass ceiling. Now, you've dealt with difficulties do you feel that the fact that you are a woman still carries a certain amount of onus in your profession? Yes, of, of course. There's um, ableism, ageism, womanism, there's all of that, and it's always going to be true. Um, and I, I hit all three now. <laughs> now I have ageism, too. Even though I don't look my age, but there's still ageism. You are, and you are you rather younger said. compared to myself, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, I've been credited with breaking through the glass ceiling and, People, performers with disabilities are, are, are going to hit several glass ceilings, if not just one. I mean, um, I think I broke through the glass ceiling when I did Facts of Life. That was, I was the first person with a visible disability to be cast in a primetime series. But I'll take that a little step further because... There were people with disabilities before me, like Lou Ferrego on The Incredible Hulk. Uh, there was a little person, I think Peter Gunn on The Wild Wild West, and they had disabilities. Lou was deaf, hearing impaired, and uh, Peter Gunn was a little person, which is considered a disability under the disability umbrella. But where my situation made a difference from them is that I was identified as having a disability, where these two performers weren't identified as having a disability. Um, you didn't know that Lou was hearing impaired or deaf. You didn't know that. And you know, little people have, have been cast in situations for eons, but you wouldn't consider it a disability. So that's, I think, where I made a difference, where I was absolutely defined as having a disability. And is that perception correct? Uh, yes. In all three cases, all three of us have a disability in a different way. If one were to meet you for the first time then, Jerry, what would you want them to notice first? Um, what, if somebody were to meet me for the first time, would it, um, my heart, <laughs> my, my spirit, um, who I am as a human being, 
Um, yeah, I, I would like them to know my heart. How did you use that in part, as well as having your talent? Was that used in getting your part in Facts of Life? Well, you know, uh, Norman Lear discovered me on When I was performing at the second annual Media Access Awards, he came up to me afterwards. And this was in 1980. And I had only been a comedian for a couple of years, even not even a couple of years, maybe a year and six months, something like that. And he came up to me after the show and he said, you're really funny, kid, but you're way before your time. I said, so wait a couple months. <laughs> okay. He just looked at me and laughed. He couldn't believe I took it that way. And he, he, he waited three months instead of two months and cast me on Facts of Life. Um, so I broke ground at that time. But then every time I do something in my career, like I've been in the industry for over four decades now, and I can count my auditions in my head. I've probably had a total of 37 auditions in four decades. That's how much some actresses have in a week, others have in a month. I've had that in four decades. So I keep having to prove myself over and over and over again, as any actor does but not to the extent that I have to. Do you feel there is a commensurate autobiography in the making? Your life seems one perpetual adventure, and I know you've written, but has there been a thought of putting serious pen to paper and telling it all? You mean... Another book or a film? What exactly do you mean? A book that would take us from the beginning to the middle to the perpetual ending because one doesn't want to see it end. But a book of advice, a diary, a personal reflection on a life well lived in the spotlight. Well, actually, I don't know if you've read my book that I wrote called I'm Walking as Straight as I Can. Have you read that book? Yes, I have. Okay, so that's pretty much, that was very honest, and it, no bars held, I just told the story, um, but I am working on another book, I'm, I'm extending, I'm walking as straight as I can, because now it's been 10 years after, and what has happened now, so I am writing another book, and uh, I, I love writing. And I think the reason I'm compelled to write is because every lesson that I have learned in my life, I love to share that with others and let others know that they're not alone, that I'm right here with them. That's exactly the focus of my question. Do you feel that uh, every morning is a continuation? And if so, do you keep a diary, Jerry? I, I do not keep a diary. I, I never have. Um, 
but I have I have a good mind. I'm able to remember stuff. I I people were amazed of my book that I could remember all those details, and I can. Um, I actually the the thing that helped me in writing the book, and the, you're going to find this funny, like, what, what was I doing in 1980? What was I doing in 1992? What was I doing? In my life, and this is funny because I'm getting ready to move again, but <laughs> I must have been a gypsy in a past life. But I used my addresses as a remembrance of what I was doing, because I have moved a total of, God, probably 39 times or 40 times in my adult life I have moved. So with every new address, that's a checkpoint in my head. Oh, what was I doing on this, at this address? So if I can remember my addresses, it really enhances my memory of other things. But if I forget the addresses, I don't know what I was doing that year. I don't remember where I lived. <laughs> Do you have then any sublimal tendency to wish someday to call something a permanent home? Uh, yes, hopefully. Yes. Actually, I think I'm going to do that now. Maybe not yet. Um, <laughs> Like I said, I think I was a gypsy in a past life, and I brought that in that energy with me in this life because I've moved a lot. But uh, you know, even when I was a kid, you know, we didn't move a lot. But I, I we moved from Buffalo to Lancaster to Garden Grove to Fullerton. But I spent most of my childhood in Fullerton, probably thirteen years without moving again, and that frustrated me. So every two weeks, I would change all the furniture in the whole house. <laughs> Jerry, when you put moving the furniture, I liked moving. I liked my my environment to look different. I I even changed my bedroom furniture so many times. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, they said Picasso kept on making and remaking his bed. So creative people, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know where I get that from. Now, you're a very pragmatic person. You seem very quixotic. You're able to do so many things and do them at the moment. How did you feel about dealing with something like Red, like Deadwood, where you have a scripted play where lines are to be prescribed and learned and you wrote Recite Back. Did you have to keep yourself under constraints? Um, not under constraints. It was, I mean, I'm capable of memorizing lines and delivering lines. Um, it was finding who I was as a character. Um, I can remember very early on in the first season, I played Jewel a certain way. And David Milch came to the set and he said, come on, we're going for a ride. And he put me on his electric cart. And we're, we're riding around the course. And he said, well, we're in the studio out in the lot. 
and he said, Jerry, why are you playing Jewel as if she's stupid? <laughs> I said, because she is stupid. <laughs> he said, when did you make the decision that Jewel is stupid? I said, when you wrote the lines and wrote them as if she was stupid. <laughs> and he just smiled. He said, Jerry, she's not stupid. She is extremely intelligent. Well, then write her more intelligent lines. Jerry, this is the 1800s, and Jewel is extremely intelligent, but she is not formally educated. So stop making her language a, a factor in her intellect. She's very smart, but she doesn't have correct language. Can you play it that way? And my eyes were bulging. I was like, wow, I never thought about that. <laughs> that is interesting. And from that point on, I played Jewel as being intelligent. Like there was, there was a line where I gave Trixie a, a gun to go shoot someone. <laughs> and she looked at me stunned and she said, how did you get this? How did you get this gun, Jewel? And I said, I sold a piece of pussy. <laughs> and I realized that when David wrote that line for me to to say it was sarcasm. I, I knew that she didn't really, she was just being sarcastic. Do you does that make any sense? Yes, it <laughs> does. Please continue if you wish. I, I would be just curious, an addendum to that, do you feel then that conversation and dialogue in a good actor or actress needs to be a reflection of their soul? Tone and inference seem so important. There's always a reflection of the actor in whatever role they're playing. You can't escape that. Um, there's always going to be a part of Jerry and Jewel. Oh, there's part of Jerry and Jewel. <laughs> now, there's something you can touch on. In Facts of Life, I was cousin Jerry in Deadwood and Jewel. So, twice they made my name a part of my character. And uh, truthfully, I was always frustrated by that. And I, I was like, oh, can't you give me a different name? And David insisted that my name, David Milch insisted that my name was Jewel. And I thought, oh, here we go again, fact of life. But since then, I've looked at it differently. It's quite an honor that they have felt that my name is endearing to the to the character. It's almost like, you know, a love. You know, we love you and we're gonna bring you to life here. So instead of looking at it negatively, oh God, why can't I have a real role, a real name? Now I've just accepted it as a positive and a, and I'm hoping that some casting director will fill out, will figure out my middle name and cast me in something again. <laughs> it's marvelous to live a life as you have, knowing that people are better for you passing by. 
Are there roles or is there a role you would love to still play? Uh, you know, if you, if you asked me that years ago, I, I would say yes. Um, a streetcar named Desire. I always wanted to play in that role. Um, the uh, Enchanted Garden, I, I wanted to do that, but I think I'm too old for those roles now. And now my dream is to just be a wonderful character actress. I, I don't care what role it is. Just let me be a character. Um, and I, I hopefully I can be more character. In fact, when I did the Deadwood movie, they aged me big time. <laughs> And it, it was it was wonderful having that character looking, God, 15, 20 years older than me right now. This has proven to be an exquisite hour. I would hope that uh, you would be amenable for us to do this again as your career further develops, Jerry. We uh, remain at your discretion. I'm sure the listening audience feels the same way. Are there any final words you'd like to say? Uh, final words. Um, yeah. You know, believe in yourself always. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Um, because that's the greatest gift you can give yourself and you can give others. Because if you don't believe in yourself, you don't have anything to give others. You don't have the gift to give. You have to embrace your gift of you first, and then give that to others. I would imagine I can respond uh, in a way that Stanley would not to Blanche, but you certainly do believe in yourself, and it's warranted. It has been our pleasure to have Jerry Jewell on this microphone and on this program. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Mm -hmm.